Hey friends, this is Jeff Wu, and we're back on the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And today we're going to be talking to someone special and a little bit different from our typical fair. I've been in touch, and I would say just recently just reconciled with a good high school friend of mine, a very interesting background and career in law enforcement and tech entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of the ways he's thinking about his career, his life's effort, really is relevant in terms of what a lot of the broader social struggles and challenges of our time. I know that we usually talk about human performance, the individual nutrition metabolism, but I really see that individual component is great. But if we don't, if we can only optimize the individual and not think about the broader cultural optimization or community optimization, we're really missing about you know, most of the fruits and joy of life. So I'm really pleased to welcome on Rahul Sidhu. Hey, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jeff. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah, good to- How's it, good. How's it in Montana right now? Yeah, it's it's been great. Uh, I feel like Montana feels like America in the sense that <laughs> a little bit more freedom out here, blue skies, it's beautiful, some great hiking. But yeah, we had a blast hanging out more in your wheelhouse a couple weeks back in Los Angeles area. So yeah, great to reconcile and, and, and catch up here, brother. Absolutely, man. So for folks who might want to understand your background and career path, I mentioned law enforcement and interest in technology. Let's set the stage here in terms of all the different hats that you've worn through your career so far. Yeah, yeah. So I've had uh, two tracks in my career. I've had like the tech track and the public safety track, and a lot of it's been simultaneous. So on the public safety side, um, I've got a little bit of 10 years of experience there. Uh, started as an EMT, paramedic, went to school for emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, crew chief, and then became a police officer uh, shortly after that, about seven years ago. And I still work as a reserve officer here in Los Angeles County. That's on the public safety side. On the tech side, you know, I got my start like a lot of tech entrepreneurs, hacking together things in high school. I had a, a little startup in high school to help you know, pay my way through college a little bit, and then uh, worked on some apps in public safety, more specifically uh, in EMS uh, when I was in college. And then, uh, you know, after I, I started as a police officer, I saw a lot of opportunities specifically around the context of improving customer experience, public perception, and more specifically, leveraging data that public safety agencies were gathering, not specifically to just help go catch bad guys, but to do other aspects, you know, and focus on other aspects of the public safety mission that uh, are being neglected by the use of technology and data. For us specifically, it's measuring and improving public perception. And I think this is a super timely conversation, right? Like in this backdrop, in, in terms of this conversation, we see potential just increased polarization of how civilians, everyday citizens are treating their peers in law enforcement on the other side, right? And I don't, and I think that's like the, the, the problem or the question of our time. Why is it considered the other side? Does it really need to be such an antagonistic relationship? And I think in some sectors of our culture, our country, I think it's like, you know, completely like, you know, we stand behind and are supportive of our law enforcement officers, you know, they're keeping us safe from the bad people. And then I think on the other side, and I think with reasonable, understandable uh, justification and rationale, if we, you know, empathize at that level, some reasonable questions around, hey, like the, the law enforcement that we're paying taxes for aren't really of service to us. And I think you say a really nice phrase, the customer experience, right? And all of us civilians or citizens are really customers of law enforcement. So I think it's great to really get into your head as someone who's been thinking about this problem as a technologist, as well as being a, a police officer. Maybe the way to just open up this can of worms here is, do you sense that polarization when you're patrolling or out on the street is that just like what the media is, is is showing us or are your everyday interactions great? Like, like tell us from the front lines. And I think this is like a great conversation because I think not a lot of people talk and know police officers on a human level. It's like a badge in a uniform and not a human being. So hopefully in this conversation, we can unpack that and uh, put like a human face to this, you know, this blue line. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. So Speaking more from a, like a frontline perspective, and and you know I, I I'm still dual track, so there are moments where I'm I'm more on the front line. There are moments where I'm I'm you know focusing on police reform in the last five years, 
totally, you know, around the country. And from a frontline perspective, especially since June, a lot of that really depends on where you're working as a police officer. So every community has its own relationship, right, with with their police department. Uh, in some communities, that relationship is very strong. And the officers that are going out nowadays in those communities, and even in communities where it's, it's relatively strong, um, they're getting a lot more support when they're driving around than people probably realize. Uh, you get stuck, you know, you get stuck in your feedback loops when you're on social media, et cetera. And, and you get stuck with whatever, you know, media sources you trust and what they're saying and the way they're painting a certain picture. But then when you go out into the real world, a lot of these officers, you know, they'll just get people coming up to them and saying, hey, we just want you to know that we really appreciate what you're doing. And, and we hope you don't feel, you know, that you're being neglected or that people hate you. We, we're, we feel strongly for you. And, and that those little moments are massive, massive to police officers when they're going out and someone just walks up to them and says, hey, just thank you for, for doing what you do. It's a massive, massive thing. And if, if, you know, if those of you listening to this, you know, I can't tell you how much uh, we appreciate that. Now, if you're in communities that are obviously going through a lot more of a, you know, police community relationship struggle, it really, again, it depends on who you're talking to. What you're going to find is, and this is how I describe it, is that Everybody in the community is essentially a customer of that local law enforcement agency. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're in that community, you're a customer. And I say that even for people who are being arrested, you know, even for people who are committing crimes, you're still technically customers. But we break down customers from your primary customers and your secondary customers. Primary customers are the ones that are actively requesting for police services. So those are your victims of crime. Those are the people that are calling 911, the people that are reporting things in our community. Those are people that are saying, I need your help. Those are the people that at my company, at SpiderTech, we focus on, on you know, specifically improving those relationships. And then we also focus on the secondary side, which is you know, people who you know, maybe you pull somebody over and, and you're talking to that person. Or maybe it's someone who's got had no interaction with the police department, but there's an expectation that if they call, that the police will come and do something for them. And then on the secondary side, you know, you've got a little bit less of a of a relationship that's built on on an interaction and more built on the perception and a game of telephone that they're basically playing with people who are telling them how to feel about the police department. On the primary side, if, if even in, 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 in neighborhoods or in communities where the, the police community relationship is a struggle, you know, when, when you're responding to a 911 call and dealing with crime victims, those people are generally going to be more appreciative that you showed up. And those are the people that police departments deal with more on a daily basis. So the people that are calling for services. So that said, you still have environments, you know, in places like Portland and Seattle and Minneapolis and more, you know, in Louisville, where officers for the last several months have just been rotating in and out of chaotic environments where they're just getting injured, people are throwing things at them, people are actively trying to help or hurt them. They're trying to, you know, scream. We're, you know, they're they're hearing them say that they they want them all to die. Obviously, they're not going to have the same reaction that I'm having, but the vast majority of America and the vast majority of American police officers are still feeling some level of support on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's refreshing to hear and good to hear, just given like a lot of the headlines, you you pull up, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, you just see, you know, Molotov cocktails blowing up in police officers' faces. And, 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 and that's definitely one view of reality. And then on the other hand, you can see cops in New York just beating people down on the street. And if that's what you focus on, that's uh, like a, a equally valid view of reality. I mean, I think one thing that I've almost, I, just given the information environment that we're in, and I think that you alluded towards, whatever bubble that you want to see to drive a narrative, you can see a lot of video to drive that narrative, right? If I only wanted to see police officers beating up people, I can, I can watch hours of footage. If I can only, if I want to see rioters or protesters beating up like shopkeepers and shooting at people and throwing Molotov cocktails everywhere and hate the protesters, I can be in that world. But from, it sounds like from your frontline experience with your community of law enforcement, sounds like that's at least is a very small minority. So I think we should hopefully focus that that is the default state and we have very crazy edge cases. And I think that I would say that most Americans probably would agree with that. And I think perhaps the more interesting conversation is around the edge cases. I generally believe that technology is a good tool that helps make things more streamlined. So I think that's where it's like an interesting spot for you, just you know having both foots in and out. I mean, 
whether it's spider tech or other ideas or concepts, I mean, what are some of the key things that we should as a modern 21st century culture civilization that can make the policed and police officer relationship better? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Some of them are just absolute low hanging fruit and that technology exists today. I mean, one perfect example is body cams. Um, you know, in this day and age, you're going to find that officers generally overwhelmingly support the use case when it comes to body cams. There's this, you know, some people would assume that cops don't want to wear them because they're trying to go around and get away with things. But more, more common, especially in today's world, is that cops are doing something that's reasonable. But, you know, someone gets like an eight second clip from a different, you know, without context and trims it and then posts it. And the entire body cam footage vindicates whatever that accusation was. Since the creation or the adoption of body cams, it's shown a significant decrease in not only complaints, but the sustained complaints. So like now that I'm seeing that I have these body cams on, I can just go, hey, that's not what happened. Just you can review my body cam footage. And generally speaking, you can absolutely infer that a decrease in complaints comes from the fact that, hey, if I've got body cams on, I'm going to re- I'm going to uh, <laughs> I'm going to like uh, uh, be more appropriate with how I deal with the public, of course. But the other side to it is that people generally know if I'm being recorded right now, that whatever I'm going to say happened might, you know, come back against me. So body cam footage is an absolute must. And I believe funding for body cams needs to be allocated, whether it's at a city level or a state level or the federal government says we're going to make sure that every agency in America has the ability to provide body camps. That's extremely important. Louisville is a really good example where Louisville Metro um, for the Breonna Taylor case, those detectives, plainclothes detectives weren't, they didn't have body cams and they weren't issued body cams. When, When they're going to city council and saying, I need to buy X amount of body cams, they have to buy a certain amount where they believe is going to be a reasonable amount that's going to be utilized for a specific amount of officers. So if I have a thousand officers, of course, the chief's going to say, I want a, a thousand body cams. The city council is going to say, we don't have enough money for that. How many officers do you have that are routinely interacting with the public? And they're going to say, well, our patrol officers, and that's 500. And then you okay, we'll buy enough for 500. In fact, we're only going to buy enough for 150 because there's only 150 audit every time and they can shift back and forth. And then that number gets trimmed. And then you have these circumstances where sometimes detectives are going to go out and they don't have, they didn't, they were never issued body cams and that shouldn't happen. You know, everybody should have body cams. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, is, and this is where we come in more spider tech. So just to kind of give a little bit of an overview, spider tech focuses on two major things. Number one is actually measuring these police community interactions again at an interaction level. So we automatically send out surveys to people who interact with the police, whether that's a 911 caller or crime victim, or more recently, you know, we can send surveys to people who are interacting because they called the dispatcher or they might've been pulled over in a traffic stop. Those interactions we believe are ground zero for an improvement or decline in public perception. Everything after that is essentially a game of telephone. So if we can measure those interactions, we can seek to improve them. And the other side of what we do is we provide a much more seamless customer service experience or customer experience for people to interact with the police. So in our jurisdictions, we try to match what Amazon does in a certain way. If you call 911 and you hang up the phone, you're going to get a text message that says, hey, an officer's in, you know, in route, here, here's you know what the uh, your 911 call number is, here's what to expect, all the way to your report has been filed. You know, here's what you need to send your insurance company, detectives have been assigned, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're actually getting to the, the court aspect of it, district attorneys and, and holding their hand across the entire process, keeping it transparent at a one-to-one level. So that's one part of it is improving those individual interactions. But going back to the measuring of those interactions, that's something that's never been done before in the history of public safety. Yeah. And people and, always and just ask. To even interject there for a quick second. I mean, I think in terms of human performance, one phrase that my listeners will always hear me say is that if you can't measure it, how can you optimize it? And it seems so fundamentally Silicon Valley or engineering focused that like, okay, we want to optimize our police community relationship score. What is it? Like no one even knows. It's like you get angry people that have a bad, it's like the Yelp problem, right? The only time that anyone like gives a damn about like these utilities is when they like really screw up, which is like a one star, or it's like some really great like birthday, some really big celebration, it's like a five star. And then like you miss 80, 90% of the actual signal. Yeah. And there's actually two, there's two sides to that. So the side you're more, you're talking about, like if I could, 
identify what's important from a policing perspective to all members of my community and then break that, that, you know, break that down by neighborhood, by demographic, I can get a better understanding of where and how I should allocate police resources, right? And right now with agencies that don't have this capability, it's just who's the loudest at my city council meetings? Who's the, who are the ones that are emailing my city council people the most? Who's got the highest profile? That is not how a, any city organization should be run. That's just not a way to do it. That's on one side of it. The other side of it, and I, I tell this to investors and people all the time. If I asked you, Jeff, what would, you know, police chiefs are being hired and fired based on one metric. Most, I would imagine you or most people would say, I, I would assume that metric is crime, right? That's like the performance metric an increase and decrease in crime, keeping us safe. It's just not the case. Crime is going up in certain jurisdictions and people are like, we're happy with that chief. And crime is going down in certain jurisdictions and people are like, this chief needs to be fired. So the most important metric uh, from a performance standpoint is going to be public perception. And if you're not even measuring that metric, let alone trying to improve it, you're just trying to improve it blindly. So without that, you're operating an entire organization and your job as a chief is completely you know, just on the fringes based on a metric you have no idea how to control. That's fascinating. And it's like, I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor here if folks are watching on video. And it's like, if you, it's like, and it's like, you're basically building the continuous perception monitor for police, right? So that the folks in charge can dynamically adapt their strategy, their approach, according to the dynamic of evolution of their community, which just makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's elegant from like, oh, this is obvious. Like, why doesn't this already exist? So it sounds like you're trying to build what should have existed. Well, uh, you know, the other thing, like you bring up the glucose monitoring. Imagine, so there's, there's another thing that I mentioned about this, and that's how there's obvious benefits to identifying also at an interaction-based level liabilities, right? Which of my employees, you know, like, like who's doing a really good job? Okay, this person right now is getting some constantly negative survey feedback. Let's let's fix this before this becomes a disaster and we're on the news for something, right? But what people don't think about is the effect that positive reinforcement has on improving officer culture, for example. And like bringing it back down to glucose monitoring, you and I were talking about this like you know last week, right? We were we were going out and we we're shooting and we we're just we we're just talking about stuff like this about building muscle and trying to get an understanding of what types of, you know, like what really triggers hypertrophy and, and like what, you know, like the, how many grams of protein do I really need? And like, I was thinking about this, I'm, I'm imagining if I was wearing something that was basically tracking my ability to like maintain an ana anabolic response while I'm sleeping, while I'm moving around. And it's basically measuring the things that I'm putting in my body and the effect that it has on triggering an anabolic response and building muscle for me. And it's telling me at the end of the day, Hey, you ingested all of this and you were able to build 0.1 pounds of muscle based on this and based on this workout. If it gave me that positive response, my likelihood of repeating that exact behavior because I know it's good and also just the psychological component of going, hey, I had a good day today and I can have that same good day because I'm not just operating blindly. Because right now what we're doing is we're just eating things and going, okay, I think this is making an effect, but it happens so slowly that I don't know, I don't have the data necessarily to go, I built muscle today. And similarly, at an officer level, if I have the data to go, people were happy with my feedback. This week, I got four positive res survey responses. And now I can take that as a performance metric and, and maybe apply for a promotion. Or I just know that you know people know that I'm, I've got this customer service score that's relatively high. I know to keep doing that. And psychologically, it, it improves the culture of not just me, but now within the entire organization. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a fan, but I mean, it just, I just like very elegant as how, especially how it just fits into just basic systems engineering, right? If we're engineering a better culture here, it's like you, you got to measure and you got to be dynamic to the system. So maybe just like open it up to just like being, a, you know, going into the eyes and I know that you don't speak all police and this is your personal experience or your observations or anecdotes. I, I'm just like thinking through what some of our community or my friends would, who would be a little bit more skeptical to law enforcement, what would they ask or what would they want to challenge or push on? And I think one of the questions is, do cops even care? I mean, is there this like notion of this like blue gang, this blue line that 
we're not going to self-police. Obviously, there's going to be small pockets like in any group of bad apples. That's like the, the, the common saying. But I'm curious in terms of at least speaking from your personal experience, how true is that? How do we resolve that? How do we eliminate that type of behavior? Is this something that is of concern or should we as a society be concerned about? Yeah, so that's a good question. You can probably go... And if you have the data to look at every police department and every police officer, you could track varying levels of empathy. You know, generally like emotional intelligence is one metric and then determine that some people have more than the other. You could, and and in hiring profiles, you know, like they have to go through multiple psychological tests that determine they have at least a baseline level of this. But then you could probably track where they're empathizing, where they're not empathizing. Obviously the police, especially with the way that it's being portrayed in the media and how, how much how difficult it can be to, to be a police officer right now, especially they're, they're just, they're exhausted. They're emotionally exhausted. Right. And it's building, unfortunately it builds a more, there's, there's a, there's momentum on both sides from more of an us versus them mentality, because I'm sure you can imagine that the police are just seeing this, maybe some, not as much like on the streets, but they're seeing this in the news and they're seeing this on their social media feeds. And and I have a personal anecdote about this. But they're sitting there thinking, man, you know what? Like, if everybody just hates me, then fine. Everybody just hates me. And they're seeing politicians that are throwing them to the wolves. And they're seeing people going, not just defund the police or abolish the police, but kill all cops and all cops are bastards. And they're thinking, this is unwinnable. The public just hates me. And then a lot of the good ones, and think about this, the ones that actually have like a high level of empathy and emotional intelligence, they're going to be more heavily affected by this mentality. They're just naturally built to absorb the emotions of other people. And so those are the ones that are going to go, I can't take this anymore. And they're going to leave. <laughs> like it's kind of, it's, it's one of those difficult scenarios where your most empathetic people are just going to have a hard time handling this job. And you know, you have a, a high level of police suicide because of that. But more importantly, they're just going to go, this job isn't for me. Everybody hates me and they're going to leave. And we're seeing that. We're seeing high levels of attrition and terrible uh, hiring stats compared to the same time last year. Now, personally, and this is now more of an anecdote, when the George Floyd protests happened, I remember I told everybody about how terrible this situation was. And I remember seeing every police officer that I knew, I mean, most of them at least, go on Instagram and, and, and Facebook and social media and go, I stand by those asking for justice. You know, I do not condone what happened with George Floyd. And, you know, I'll tell you that I, I, I did the same thing. In fact, I did multiple days of frequently asked questions you know, and ask me anything. And I was trying to answer as many questions as I could, which was really difficult given the sensitive nature of that environment at the time. And I had people like people that I thought I was friends with that just were like, Hey, I'm sorry, but we can't be friends because I understand that you're working on reform and I get that you're a good person or whatever the circumstances are, but you're part of a machine that I just don't support. I just don't support the world of policing. So we can't be friends anymore. And that's an emotional hit for me. And, you know, like going through that at the same time is difficult. Um, But I'll tell you one thing, regardless of the varying levels of empathy at a basic human level, I personally believe that every police officer in America was watching, especially those of us who might have been deployed to riot scenarios, was watching these riots either in person or on TV, watching things explode, watching destruction the last couple of months, not just physical destruction, but the fact that 19 people have died as the results of, of these protests and riots since June. Watching that, watching the destruction in their daily lives, seeing budgets get defunded and, and people tell them they didn't want to be friends with them anymore. Watching all of this and thinking, can I curse in this podcast? Yeah. Let's just be real. That motherfucker, Derek Chauvin, did this to all of us. Because every time a bad cop does something and the rest of us are now getting ambushed in the streets because of it, we're getting bottles thrown at us, they're, they're lighting our police cars on fire, and all of this is happening. We're not going, oh, someone go like, uh, like oh, this, like, oh, I don't care about this. We're going, who the fuck did this? Who like? Of course, we can judge the 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 veracity of the response, and we can sit there and get upset about the fact that you know the facts aren't being reported, or it's out of context, or we're trying to explain this. But ultimately, we're still going motherfucker Derek Chauvin, and we're looking at ourselves and our own departments and going, "Who's the Derek Chauvin here that's going to be responsible for me not being able to go home to my kids tonight, 
or put me in a situation where someone's going to take my house away or my entire family has to go on a, some type of witness protection style program because I'm now on the news because someone else did something bad at my agency or put me in that scenario. That's something we're constantly thinking about. And obviously at an individual level, it doesn't, it's kind of hard for cops to go, yeah, I'm trying to go out and look for bad cops, but it's true. Like we, we discuss this amongst ourselves and we, we try to isolate those people. We don't want bad cops at our agency. It's ultimately a huge liability. I think I told you the story about, about what happened to me in 2012. Did I tell you about this? I think you were mentioning, yeah, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. So I was working as a paramedic in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm, again, in uniform, I've got my EMT in the passenger seat. I'm driving an ambulance and I'm on my way to a call for service. I'm driving up the freeway. I think it was the 47 North in Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden, an unmarked car pulls me over on the freeway. And uh, this, this, this cop pulls, you know, comes out of the, he's actually, I don't even know if he's a cop. He just got red and blue lights, an unmarked car, no gun, no uniform, kind of a short old white dude. And he starts walking up to the ambulance and he starts screaming at me. And he starts basically, he's like, he doesn't even know if I'm a real paramedic or not. He's accusing me of all kinds of things, asking for my license. He wants to verify my status, all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, dude, what, what's going on? And he's pissed because I, I, I cut him off on the way to a call in an ambulance when he's driving an unmarked car. I remember he threw his license, my, my, my license back at me. He says he's going to come after me for a warrant. He's going to make sure I actually work at the, at the uh, EMS, uh, you know, at the, the rescue uh, company that I was with. He called my chief immediately after. And they're like, yeah, this guy's a, our paramedic and he's on the way to a call. Anyway, my chief ends up finding out this was the chief of police for Pittsburgh school police and um, calls and complains and goes, what's this guy's problem? That's absurd that he did this. And they ended up firing him for it because it was like the last straw. Apparently he's had road rage incidents. He was way out of jurisdiction. I mean, did a lot of things wrong. I had to testify against this guy in court, which was a terrible experience, by the way. I, I now know what it feels like or I, I, you know, to testify against, especially testify against a cop. And this guy, this is actually in the news. You could probably Google this and find this. He actually says in court that uh, he pulled me over because the FBI taught him how to racially profile and that he thought that I was driving, he says in court, a Taliban war wagon. And he thought that my, like he believed my ambulance might've been a cloned vehicle with a car bomb in it. Which is absurd. It was so absurd that when I heard this in court, I started laughing. Only person in court who thought that was funny at the time. Because I'm like, I can't believe this guy said this. Um, and again, it's actually, it's still in the articles, I think, in some of these news articles. So I've actually experienced that. The guy ended up getting fired. I think I ended up being case law in some capacity for for other actions against officers. And so I've, I, I have personally felt what it's like to be racially discriminated against by the police. I've testified against bad cops and it's difficult. It's difficult. And at the time I wasn't, I was an on-duty paramedic. So when I, I talk about the context of police reform, I talk about it knowing that there are bad cops out there. There are racist cops out there. I know you and I have talked, and I want to give you a second here to, 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 you know, tell me what you think about this, but where I believe the opportunities for police reform, you know, where they exist, especially in the last five years of trying to understand this, aren't necessarily exactly where uh, a lot of the other activists believe they are. And that's just based on my knowledge of how the, the program works. And when I became a cop, I became a cop with the knowledge that there are things that need to be broken and I'd like to fix them from the inside. Yeah. No, I, I, you did not tell me that story. And that's a crazy story to be profiled and yeah, basically just yanked around. And yet, like, like turn stronger from that interaction and like actually making a difference within that community. I'm actually curious in terms of, I think, just like the broader critiques on that type of cop, which I, I, I can just kind of imagine devil's advocates asking, well, is firing enough there? We, we hear a lot about police unions and they're too powerful. They control the attorney, you know, the district attorney. Uh, they control the mayor's office. Does that bad cop just get fired and get hired over the next county over? How do you address those types of questions? I mean, as someone that, you know, ostensibly, I don't know if you're part of the police union or not, but as someone that's part of that community, is there justification there? Is there improvements to be done to that side of house? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, I think there's two things that you're, you're touching on there. One is 
what kind of additional punishments you know are appropriate for cops who just do something wrong besides just getting fired and two how do we prevent bad cops from going somewhere else right and then and getting hired again in the first one there are actual federal laws involving abuse under the color of authority etc laws that specifically apply to peace officers that are using their authority to do something that is a crime. And in some cases, people don't realize this. I mean, those those laws are, are applied when the, the probable cause and, and it meets those the elements for that particular crime. And, you know, the question is, should they be applied more often? Are they being applied? Right. Because like, if I'm a attorney and I piss off the police union, right? It's like, yeah, like, I can imagine the argument. It's like, I'm the district attorney. I don't want to piss off my my police union friends because I need them to like win my next election. Sure. And and honestly, when it comes to federal law, usually the people that are prosecuting in those circumstances, like in some cases, aren't involved in like that local governance. Got whatsoever. it. So you're talking like so US really attorneys, like federal, like the DA federal prosecuting D- a cop yep. versus the federal. Yeah. That's going to be a totally different, uh, a totally different thing. Now to to your second point, which is how do we prevent bad cops from getting hired again? I think there's opportunity for reform there. Absolutely. I think this is actually a state to state issue. The way that states are are run, I mean, every state has the ability to govern its own local law enforcement capability and powers. Uh, in the state of California, we have a California Post. It's like a, a state agency that essentially certifies pe- uh, peace officers, provides training, provides certain requirements for for how to, you know, like you know what re- is required to be a peace officer and actually be a sworn officer and determining you know, determining um, how agencies themselves are are maintaining compliance. So if the the state of California basically revokes someone's ability to be a peace officer, then you can't be a peace officer in the state of California. That's not I'm I'm oversimplifying it because it's it's not necessarily as easy as as it sounds in every state. In some states, their governing authority is not nearly as advanced as it might be in places like. California, Arizona, or Texas, and there is opportunity for reform in that state to build and fund a stronger governing authority that raises standards, perhaps, and ensures that it's tracking these individual disciplinary situations and 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 applying that specifically. In fact, there was a uh, a bill that was being passed in California that was trying to um, to build upon that idea. I don't think they were doing it the right way, to be perfectly honest. But essentially, install a new commission within that post in California that essentially allowed for a group to say, we're going to decertify this officer based on specific actions. And then that's it. I thought that the group that they were allowing was not exactly the way I would structure a commission because it was basically three people with real um, law enforcement experience and six people that didn't have law enforcement experience, you know, which was like, you know, activists and lawyers who specialize in in, in suing the police. And that's (laughs) not the way you want to go about it. But yeah, I mean, I think that at a state level, that's what it needs to happen is you need to be able to prevent someone from going to one place to the other. Cool. Yeah, no, I think it's a refreshing perspective in terms of, and I think this is a level of conversation and nuance I think the public really needs to understand and and, 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 and learn about because there is problems with any system. I don't think this is unique to policing. Like you talk to any, we all work for some corporation or some company. I'm sure there's some bullshit company policy there, politics that you hate. And it's like, even at some company level, there's some issues with personnel. And of course, policing is another human organization and there's going to be some rough edges. But like that level of detail in terms of how you're describing some of the fixes, I think just just are very sensible. And I want to just bring in kind of what you mentioned before, this broad movement around defunding the police. And I think that's the most extreme left side of our house saying, hey, just like we just don't need police officers anymore and just abolish the PD. A lot of the folks more moderate are walking that statement back saying, hey, we don't actually mean defund. We mean like reallocate. We should instead of sending police officers, uh, we should send social workers. We should retrain like non-armed police officers. I don't know what that means. Uh, there's probably, you know, 17 amorphous ideas along those lines of, hey, uh, we don't need police officers as they are. Let's have like different types of non-armed, more socially trained negotiator types. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that reasonable? Uh, how do you break that down? Yeah, yeah. So again, like speaking in the last five years, I've been over a hundred different law enforcement agencies in America. And I've focused primarily on understanding police budgets specifically. And so I've built a lot of expertise around budgets and and getting an understanding of how they're allocating resources. So 
the, my, my big point here, although I do believe there's some credence, especially to allocating uh, resources to things that are, are currently not, you know, we're not spending enough time and money on. And I do believe there's absolutely value in additional social response uh, type, you know, workers that are focusing on improving outcomes for specific calls. Those two things I'm going to, I'm going to footnote because I think those are really important. I don't believe that meaningful reform occurs from taking money away from the police. I think that it's, it, it largely started, that movement started as a punitive action and started, you know, people were reverse justifying it into why it makes sense. But I think that there's also a false dichotomy in investing in certain things that need to be invested in and taking that money away from the police. Those two things don't necessarily have to happen together to find an appropriate outcome. So the first thing I'll say is giving credence to some of the ideas, and that is uh, elaborating on the social response idea. I absolutely, and I tell you most police officers in America, if not all of them, are going to agree with you that there are a lot of things that have become over time police problems in America that should not be police problems. And the police are asked to deal with these problems with limited training and resources. And ultimately, you're going to get police responses and police outcomes. Homelessness is not a police problem. Mental health is not a police problem. Addiction is not a police problem. These are things that should not be police problems. And funding resources towards solving those on the front end versus the back end is absolutely, I believe, a better way to reduce bad outcomes, 100%. And each one of those are very nuanced, just to be clear. There's no perfect, you know, just throw a bunch of money into one problem that's going to solve it. But at a high level, I agree with that. And what happens is, you know, obviously... If the cops are the only ones that show up to these calls, you're going to have a police, like I said, a police outcome. So there have been departments, shout out to Seattle PD and Carmen Best, uh, who I think is one of the most progressive or was one of the most progressive police chiefs in America. She, you know, years ago uh, at Seattle, and, and this was actually not when she was there, but they started a mental health response program where they're really trying to focus on building, you know, getting mental health workers involved in reducing bad outcomes. Some of it was from a tech perspective. There's a company called Ride Along that ensured that police officers that were responding to mental health calls where it's a, it's someone that they, you know, mental health workers knew, they knew what trigger words would, would uh, deescalate them or escalate them. And they would try and reduce that. But more importantly, there are departments across America for years that have been sending mental health workers alongside police officers and the mental health workers are in some cases primary to that call. So the police officer will just stand back and in some cases be out of view and the mental health worker will focus on de-escalating and providing that person with the resources they need. And I think that's a, a fantastic way of doing it. What I think you can't do is not send the police in some of the examples that a lot of activists are pushing because they're simplifying it on the streets. You know, and for 911, if I call somebody and say, hey, someone's talking to themselves on the bus and it's making people uncomfortable, that sounds at a baseline like a call that I should just send an unarmed, you know, mental health worker to. It seems safe. It's just someone talking to themselves on the bus. I can't tell you how many times those calls immediately before we even get there in some cases end up being, oops, we need a cop. Where that guy who's talking to himself on the bus within 30 seconds of that call before the cops even show up, we're now responding to a guy who's stabbing someone in the eye with a screwdriver. And if we only sent that mental health responder, you're going to get a bad outcome, right? I can, I mean, I, can, I don't even have to explain that to you, but there's also credence to if you only send the cops or if the cops are in view and how that can escalate. So there's a balance there, but ultimately that balance, you can't take money away from the police department because you still have to allocate patrol resources to be able to respond to those calls in case those cases end up becoming a problems. And in some cases, these activist groups are pushing to not send police officers to domestic disputes, for example, and send unarmed uh, mediators. Domestic disputes are among the highest in likelihood of violence and among the highest in which police officers get killed in America. So, I mean, th these are these are outcomes that just, to an untrained ear, end up becoming a problem. Yeah, if you're like a battered spouse or a child in that in that situation, right? We don't even gender the the person who's doing the abusing. I mean, do you want someone to get beaten up alongside with you? That's some that's with that someone being violent, right? Like I would say that a lot of those victims would want an armed law enforcement officer there. And ultimately, it it what is totally reasonable and up for debate is who should be responsible for that call's success. Is it going to start with the person who's unarmed and trained for it? I think it should. But ultimately, is there somebody at the back? 
that that can enter and if it becomes a violent uh, problem, deal with violence because that's what they're trained for. Yes. And you can't defund the police for that specifically. The other side of this is um, is when it comes like also and we're talking about mental health, but addiction, you know, I can tell you having dealt with addiction on both the paramedic fire EMS response side and the police side. When I go to an overdose, when I was a paramedic, we went to an overdose. We were trained that, hey, if you're going to administer Narcan, uh, which is a drug that essentially I, I can IV or even do intranasal, that's going to bring someone out of an overdose very quickly. You are, have to be ready for a violent response because what happens is someone is completely comatose because of, of you know, an overdose for narcotics. And then you, their body immediately within seconds, that high gets taken away. And more often than not, they start fighting. And so we're trained, you have to have the officers there just in case, or you have to have restraints applied to this person. That's something we were trained seven, eight years ago before police departments started administering their own Narcan because fire department personnel were going, we're not going to be, you know, sometimes cops will get there soon, but we're not going to do this until cops get there anyway. That's, that's wild. I did not know that. That's super interesting. It makes sense. I mean, I think just even just speaking in terms of my personal experience with homelessness and mental issues, I mean, it, it's a very hard challenge. And, you know, I've gotten to know some San Francisco police officers. Yeah, it's, it's a tall order, right? Like these people are sick right? Literally either addicted and, or just have mental illness. I mean, there's something wrong with them from a health perspective, right? And no one, you know, it's, we don't have kind of this mental asylum custodianship principle anymore in California. A lot of these people are on the street. I think on the activist side, we want to give them kind of the freedom to exist and, 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 and not necessarily go in jail, but then it's like, it be becomes like everyone's problem. And is that now like a police problem to like deal with someone in something that no one else wants to deal with? And I think that's like, it's like a really good question. I think the community needs to decide on, on how to, how to handle. I, I think no one wants to handle it. And unfortunately the police just got to deal with the shit end of the stick on it. Cause like, we don't want to like actually take care of these people. We don't want to put them in an asylum to like get them, make them better because we don't want to restrict their freedom. Eh, like the police can just kind of like let, let like kind of corral them in like the tenderloin or it's like kind of out of the way. I mean, I think that's literally what the citizens, the SF local population probably basically observes is what's going on. And it's like, damn, like it's a, it's a tough situation to police. Yeah. It's, it's a, I'd say one like the way that I would describe it is the average American, they'll find that something is too messy for them and they'll just go, let the, the cops handle this. This is too messy. I don't I don't necessarily want to know how and why and just get these homeless people out of here or they're you know, these these guys are doing too many drugs, get this drug problem out of here, or this guy's uh this I think this guy's crazy. I want to deal with him and then we're just gonna walk away. And there's like a moral just abandonment of this and they you know, they compartmentalize it and they move on. Yeah, and and that's where I feel some disappointment in a lot of the circles I run around in Silicon Valley, which is known to be, you know, liberal, high-minded. We have a lot of, you know, value creation or wealth creation there. None of these people, they just ignore the homeless people on the side of the street, right? It's just like above my pay grade, let's have the cops handle like, exactly to your point. And it's even if the most liberal portion of our country is viewing it this way, it's just like, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard challenge. It's not necessarily going to be solved by police reform. Um, and I think we'll leave that to another discussion of how we solve homeless issues in our country. Uh, yeah. One topic that I yeah, wanted to, yeah, one different, one concept that I want to talk about. Another thing that's, I think, a very popular talking point or area of misconception that we can help clarify or at least elucidate is this notion of militarization of police. And I think just from an optics perspective, you see these armored vehicles, you see law enforcement officers look more like SEAL Team 6 than like your friendly neighborhood cop, you know, folks are running around with AR-15s or machine guns or assault rifle, these very scary looking war machines, right, that are used to go kill Taliban or ISIS, but now is being used on the home front. Is there a point there? Should we not give police that kind of militarized weaponry? Or is this something in terms of optics? Can we make like these, these, these law enforcement look friendlier? Oh, what do you make of it? Yeah, we can make the camo pink. <laughs> and then solve a lot of that. Yeah. No, I look. I think that. Um, I think first of all, a lot of problems when it comes to optics, it, it's solved with like public education. I think law enforcement as a whole does not do enough to educate the public on what the job is like and why we do the things we do. And I say that 
not just like, you know, from a big holistic from, you know, that standpoint, but also at an individual level, I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with, where they're like, Hey, I got pulled over. And the cop was like, Hey, uh, give me your license for illustration. And you know, you match a description of blah, blah, blah. And I give it to them and, and they just, they don't explain what's going on. And they, like, they, like they have this attitude to, I don't need to tell you anything. I'm the cops, you know, like I, I, you don't, you don't, you don't need to know anything and they'll leave. And that's a bad problem at an individual level. But specifically when it comes to militarization of police, I think that's like a, when you actually look at the things that people feel are the problem with militarizing police logically, and you get an understanding of how it works, it ultimately ends up being kind of an empty argument. And I, I get there's certain things where I'm like, hey, you know what cops don't need? Cops don't need the ex- like the same camo uniforms that the SEALs have. That's that's like a completely visual. I feel cool. I feel like I'm Navy SEAL kind of thing. The SWAT teams have. I don't get I mean, I don't get that. Like that, that's just me personally. But when it comes to armored vehicles or the appropriate rifles, I, I, I tell people, ask my mom. I, I'll, I'll be like, hey, look, if I'm headed to a situation where people are shooting at me and you want to go tell my mom that he has to drive a, a car with no armor into this scenario where the other guy, this is America, that other guy has a machine gun, that other guy has an assault rifle that's going to go through my soft armor that I'm issued. Uh, you want to go tell my mom that you don't want me to have those things because it just looks less scary for me to have them. She'll explain it to you real quick why that seems absurd to her. Because ultimately in America, we have guns, we have violence, we have criminal elements that are in a lot of cases significantly more armed than the police officers that drive down the street. We have guys out there, just there was an arrest that was just made um, a, a couple days ago where these guys are running around with plate carriers, armored plate carriers full on AR uh, assault rifles with 90 round ma- or sorry uh, 30 uh, three th- uh, 30 round magazines 90 rounds of ammo 30 rounds in their in their in their ARs transition ready to go with 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 handguns running around how am i going to handle that as a police officer when they're i can't shoot their armor and get through their armor they're going to be able to engage me at a longer distance and they're going to shred my crown vic police car who do you call and the funny thing is that these armored vehicle, what people refer to as tanks, like they're just armored transport vehicles. They're called tanks because that's what people call them. But the the, the federal government's had something called the 1033 program for a long time. And what it's what it is is essentially the military started drawing down certain armored, you know, transport, you know, vehicles that were just used to transport people in environments where they might get shot, um, and then just essentially give them to police departments or heavily subsidize them. So the police departments in America are able to more, uh, you know, safely respond to threats where they're getting shot at. And the idea that police departments are spending money on, on these things is not true. 90%, you know, in, in a lot of jurisdictions, 90% of the, the budget allocation goes to personnel. They're not buying these armored vehicles in most places. And those vehicles, there's no weapons on them that are like designed to specifically go out and kill people. They're not putting machine guns on the top. In some cases, they have tear gas and, and things like that that are for crowd control because if you've seen these riots where they're blowing these cars up and literally throwing explosives at them and lighting them on fire if i'm being transported i want to be transported in a vehicle where i hope you know like i'm not going to get blown up i'm not going to get shot at in these dangerous environments and ultimately the people that you want to call 911 that are going to be able to respond for the worst case scenario you want to be able to know that they're not going to go hey we can't show up there because we just don't have the equipment to ensure that the six of us that are going to go into this nightmare scenario have the ability to go home to our, our kids at night. So, you know, the, the being able to have the appropriate gear to be able to defend myself against a threat and be able to engage a threat, whether it's an active shooter scenario or a massive riot or, or any of these, you know, I don't think that's an unreasonable response. Where I do think it's uh, reasonable is in what way they're deployed. I think there's, you know, a, a re, you know, if you're going to just send an armored vehicle to a call where there's no reason, and I haven't seen real circumstances where that's happened, of course that's weird. And if you have, like I said, guys that are dressed that look like Navy SEALs because they've got camouflage on when they should be saying police on it, and you know, the problem is that some of that overlap, it's going to be the same gear, and the American public just needs to be educated on why they need these things. Yeah, I I, I generally ag- agree with you on all those points if you actually break it down in terms of the requirements of the mission set. But I would say that the point that I think is just 
important and hopefully just becomes more adopted within the police community is that I sometimes hear a lot of police officers almost classify themselves as military where it's like the civilians or the sheep. And that's technically speaking, law enforcement are civilian law enforcement. They're not military. Mm -hmm. They're not active duty. And we need to just help everyone come together that we're all citizens of America and they have a, like the law enforcement has a job and we shouldn't get this us versus them, you know, wolf versus sheep type of a dynamic, which I think makes it very, very antagonistic. So I think even like the camo side, right? So I, I think it's like if they're looking at the cool special operations guys and wish that they were them, like they should go sign up for active duty, right? Like they should sign up for a Marine Corps and then go fight bad guys overseas. And I think that's like something that I think even it might be uh, symbolic, but I think it's kind of the right message to send to our civilian police where it's like, Hey, like you're signing up for community policing, not stomp kicking down doors and direct action missions like a, like a ranger. Yeah. And you know, I think the vast, vast majority of policing, you know, fits the criteria of, of exactly what you're describing. You know, it's, it's your job is your protector of this particular community. You're there to protect this community against people who are, uh, you know, trying to do harm to that community. You're also there, obviously, to enforce laws, you know, and 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 ensure that you know nobody's taking advantage of others by breaking the law in ways that that's doing that. And that by itself is not a Navy SEAL job, right? You don't need to go out there with the mentality that that you're, you know, you're you're a Navy SEAL. There is a survival mentality that you have to have as a police officer. And there's, you know, like an inverse survival mentality that I had to have, you know, on the fire EMS side in terms of making sure I go home at night. Because if you, for example, you know, you're an LA County deputy that just, this happened a couple of weeks ago, where two deputies assigned to the transit bureau, which is like, you know, just making sure that buses and, and like the, 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 the metro stations and those are, are, are operating effectively. You'd think that's like a low risk, but it's not a low risk, you know, type of, of unit to be in. Those two deputies are just sitting there in their car, not responding to a call. And someone walked up and shot him in the face. Yeah. I, just sitting I there. saw that. And They're not terrible. SWAT. Yeah. And, 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 and more and more officers. And this is just two deputies, uh, two officers in the last couple of weeks that have been ambushed. There are more officers, officers in Arizona that are ambushed, uh, officers in Texas. And, you know, the idea that it's not a dangerous job because you're not on SWAT isn't necessarily true. So you do have to have some level of a mentality the same way that some of these, uh, any military unit that's going to be downrange and has the capacity to get shot at is going to have that mentality. That's There is a level of mentality you have to have to survive. You have to be able to treat everybody with respect and empathy and know when to go you know, de-escalate. I mean, you also have to know when to escalate because someone could walk up to you and be very non-threatening and then all of a sudden shoot you in the face. And you have to, unfortunately, that's the side of the job that's difficult to escape from. Now that said, there are obviously units within the law enforcement community at both the federal level, like HRT and, and FBI and, and, and units that their full-time job is to kick down doors. These are guys that are serving warrants, uh, you know, hostage rescue. They're called when the situation calls for it. And a lot of them have special operations experience, you know, more experience than I would ever have in my life when it comes to stuff like this. And those guys are going to have that type of mentality 24 seven because they're doing the exact same job in a lot of ways. They're just doing them. They're doing it domestically versus internationally. And of course you could say, yeah, but they're doing it against, you know, they're doing it in America and they're the, the people that they're, they're interacting with are Americans. Absolutely. They are. But the people that are interacting with at a simple level are people that have guns and are shooting back at them and they need to shoot back at those people. And so when it comes to, I want to go home to my kids tonight, like those people are going to have some level of that mentality more than the average patrol officer is going to have. Yeah. And I think that's another good point to reflect on where I see a lot of the common discourse around, oh, was the response too aggressive? And I think there are some examples we can point to that, you know, there's bad shoots. But I think a lot of the common discussions when I have with my friends who don't necessarily have experience with firearms or, you know, speaking with active duty law enforcement it's they're like oh why don't they just like shoot them in the leg or they should have just like tackled them and, and handled them why do they have to like shoot them five times what what like why do they have to shoot them in the chest what are the misconceptions there's why can't why can't you just shoot the perpetrator or the suspect in the foot um and then and then and handcuff them like what's what's wrong with that logic there's two things to touch on there what are the misconceptions and where are the opportunities for improvement misconception wise 
the, the, why don't you shoot someone in the leg is one you just mentioned. And there's a couple reasons for that. Everybody watches movies and plays video games. And if you play like a video game, and you shoot someone in the foot enough times, like they're going to run out of hit points and they're going to die. Right. And in the movies, like a well-placed shot in the foot, the person stumbles and now they, they're crawling over and they can't do anything. That's just not the way it works. You have a central nervous system. It's your, you know, your spine going up to your brainstem. And also uh, real, honestly, like, any round, like any any bullet that's going to go through your body that doesn't hit your central nervous system does not necessarily have the capacity to completely stop you from advancing towards me with a knife, for example. The FBI has built something called the 21-foot rule where they believe within 21 feet, the odds of actually getting stabbed with someone with a knife that has it readily available against a police officer who's got to you know, get into a gunfight and shoot this person, that knife person is going to win. And if you don't shoot that knife person in the central nervous system, which is center mass somewhere that's going to affect the spine or it's going to affect, uh, you know, my brainstem, which is even then it's not just my head. It's like this area. It's, we call it the goggles where it's going to have some type of concussive impact to my brainstem. You're not going to shut my body down to a level where it's going to collapse and I'm going to eliminate that threat from advancing towards me. I could shoot somebody in the leg, even in the femoral artery, which is the most dangerous place in the leg, where I'm going to bleed out in 90 seconds. And it's not going to necessarily have the ability to stop me from in that 90 seconds with adrenaline stabbing you 50 times in the face. It's just not, it's just not the way the human body works. You might get lucky. You might shatter someone's femur and their adrenaline's still pulling, but you're, it might happen. But then you have to add another layer to this, which is how insanely difficult that shot is when you have about a second and a half while you're moving and that person's moving and adrenaline's moving through your body and you're kind of shaking around and you're trying to get that shot off. It's just your odds of that shot. Are you going to bet even if you train and you not, you know, like I train and you train, we train for shots like that. And you got special operators that train for shots like that. It's just, they're not going to bet that on their own life that I'm going to be able to hit that shot. So when you combine all of that, your odds of, of eliminating a threat in a second and a half as it advances towards you is going to be center mass. So they're going to be shooting center mass as much as they can, unless they know that person has some type of armor, and then they're going to shoot here for the brainstem. And that's, they're trained for that for, for those reasons. Now, we talk about that as deadly force. There's another layer to this, whereas why don't they tase them, for example, before they get, you know, why don't they use some level of, of, of you know, non-deadly force? The taser is effective when it works. It's a great tool when it works. There are so many things that make it not work. If the jacket or the shirt gets caught on a prong because the person's moving, if they're sweaty because they're on drugs and they're wet, if the prong misses, if you know it's it's faulty, you can I can show you so many body cam uh, videos where you know they'll try and taste someone and it doesn't work. And more recently, Jacob Blake, that, you know, tragic event that they tase him twice and it didn't work. In some cases, you can just pull the prongs out. So if you can try and use these things, you have to try and use these things. Of course, you want to escalate appropriately. But once there's a point where it's a, okay, I'm now at a scenario where I have to bet my life or the life of someone else on a second and a half of a decision that I have to make, I'm going to go towards a thing that I feel like is going to have the most effect on the person that is advancing towards me or someone else to try and cause them harm. And I, as a police officer, don't have to bet this person's life on allowing you as a suspect to safely try to kill me or this other person that I'm trying to protect. It's just, that's not, that's not how the continuum of force works. That said, I do believe that there are two opportunities or a couple opportunities for reform here going back to the idea of reform, that it's not being touched on right now. I, there are a couple of people like Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink that are in the MMA and, and, and uh, you know, in, in uh, basically jiu-jitsu community. Didn't Andrew Yang say we got to give every, uh, everyone needs to be a purple belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Right, right. At the very least, a blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And for those of you who don't know, you know, the, the intricacy of jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu is a grappling art. It's designed to put people into positions where they essentially have to submit and to be able to put them into positions where we can safely get them in handcuffs and not have to use force on them that's going to be concussive in nature or, you know, is going to involve deadly force. And more officers that are good at these types of grappling arts like jujitsu, not only are they going to be able to more safely handle themselves without having to use some of these other tools that may or may not work, but they're going to have the confidence to know that, hey, I know that if I get into a fight with this person, I'm going to be able to wrangle them up into a pretzel and put handcuffs on them and they're going to have no injuries and we're going to be able to walk away from this without any use 
cameras, you know, coming at us later. That's a really effective thing to be able to do. Now, being in shape, generally speaking, is going to be another impactful thing. If I'm not in shape, if, if, if I'm going to um, be in a position where I'm going to get winded really fast, or I know that I'm going to lose a fight because this person is in better shape than me, then I'm more likely to have to be now in a scenario where I'm going to have that one and a half second outcome where I'm going to have to fire rounds at this person. And that's not a good place to be, you know, and, and it's in a lot of the problem is that, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions legally, how much can you force someone at any job to be in shape? You know, now you have, you've got employment law that gets into, into, into effect and, and discrimination when it comes to disabilities. And so you have to work through that idea. You have to work through the idea that a six foot four, 245 pound specimen of a, a, specimen of a man who is going to be in phenomenal shape that CrossFits, et cetera, obviously going to be like, that sounds like a good person to come and protect us. And someone's going to be in less shootings because they can take care of themselves. But what about someone who's five foot one and 110 pounds? Can you go tell that person that they're not legally allowed to become a police officer? Probably not. So you have to balance all of these things with the use of force continuum. Yeah, and I think that's very nice articulation of everything. And I think we all have to remember from the law of large numbers, all like the vast majority of interactions are great, right? Like I fortunately have not have had to be in a number of law enforcement interactions, but usually when I'm pulled over, I probably did something bad. Like I probably sped a couple of times. Right. And it's like, great, handled it. I think the overarching point is that we should not have these types of conversations be stigmatized. I think you have to let people articulate. So I appreciate you being a, a thought partner and also just educating and, and talking very articulately around uh, a perspective that I don't think a lot of us are able to see on a day-to-day basis. You know, absolutely. I think that in conversations where, you know, there's obviously a lot of sensitivity around around what we we're talking about today, especially. And anytime you're having a conversation where, you know, with anybody, you have to like this is my philosophy. You have to understand the intent behind what they're trying to say. If you feel like their intent is generally malicious, then it's natural to have a response that's like gonna be fairly critical of what they're saying and then coming at them and 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 then that builds a level of antagonistic you know behavior. That's I, you know, I get that. If you believe that their intent is not malicious, then you have to give them the freedom to be able to work around how they're communicating with each other. I obviously, like I said, when it comes to policing, I'm not here to say there's not a problem and there are not opportunities for reform. That's just not true. I'm here to explain, yes, there are opportunities for reform. Police officers can be better. There are reasons to be upset and demand better from our police. We should always be demanding better, you know, uh, or demanding that our police become better. And that my intent is to just shed, show the truth and shed a perspective on what I've learned in the last several years in the world of policing and public safety. Because if we don't have conversations where people like me and other officers who are out there um, and people in, 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 in the world of policing that are out there are, are willing to have that conversation and say, hey, candidly, this is where I think the mistakes are being made and where we need to make improvements. At the other side of that, the other person's intent should be to genuinely absorb this information and determine what's impactful to them. And what they're actually trying to get out of this. Some people, you know, they're, it's, it's difficult because their intent isn't like that. Their intent is, I have a specific worldview and I want to make sure you understand that. And if you don't agree with my worldview, and I don't mean this liberally or conservatively, I mean, this is on all sides of the fence. If you don't agree with my worldview, then you're an enemy and I'm going to do all, everything I can to punitively make you feel that way. And that's just, no progress gets made there. I want to sit there and listen to people who feel like there are problems and find solutions for them. You and I are entrepreneurs. That's how we're built. Where is the problem? What's honestly the problem? Let's be intellectually honest about it. And then how do we actually solve this? And let's keep working at it. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to break a couple things in the process. But ultimately, we're hopefully going to arrive at a solution that builds a better world. And that's what we, you know, that's that's how we need to approach things. Yeah. I, well said. I can't add anything on top of that. So, how do people follow your, I mean, again, I think your voice is super unique and very well articulated. I mean, I know you're thinking about making a podcast. You should absolutely do it. Where do people follow along and tune in? I mean, obviously you're doing great work on the technology front in terms of bringing policing to the 21st century, that's spider tech, but that's not going to be relevant in terms of, you know, I potentially hopefully have some folks in law enforcement that might be able to tune in and then check out uh, Rohul's offering here. But how does the average everyday listener who's everyday American citizen or a permanent resident or someone on a visa, part of the American coalition here, 
How can they stay involved, engaged? Yeah, look, a, a couple things. When it comes to like following me specifically, my goal when it comes to the public is just to help bridge the gap you know, between the law enforcement and the community and solve some of these issues from just a communication education standpoint. Follow me on Twitter. I'm sure, you know, visually you'll be able to see my my, my Twitter handle here, but it's R-A-H-O-O-L-S-I-D-O-O. And, you know, I'm, I'm more actively trying to engage in that capacity. I'll have uh, a lot of stuff on my bio in terms of how to, you know, my, my podcast and, and the company website and, and follow there. Talk to if you if you got friends in law enforcement, talk to them. Tell them about Spider Tech. Tell them about the ability to to build a customer service platform automatically within their agency that that helps them improve uh, their interactions and and measure their public perception to see how they're doing. Uh, but more importantly, my call to action here is just take a breath and talk to each other and be willing to have these sensitive communicate you know uh, conversations in a way that's just intellectually honest. Don't, you know, try to, to, to take a step back, understand the intent behind what each person is saying, align yourselves and just have this conversation. If I'm in a position as a police officer and any police officer feels like they can't even tell you what it's like or, or give you any perspective because you're going to shout them down and call them all kinds of mean names that every cop is a bastard, no progress is going to happen in America. And similarly, just even if it's not about policing, just have that level of understanding because I feel like in the last four years, especially, we've gotten so far away from that productive ability to communicate that we're only going in the wrong direction. So that's my big call to action for everybody. Yeah. Let's listen to the man, Raul. Everyone follow him. All right. Thanks, brother. You got it, man. Thanks for having me on and I hope you enjoy Montana. Montana. 